Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. If you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Right now, you can find a bonus episode about Tasha's trip to Fantastic Fest with more to come. You can find it all at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Tasha Robinson. So we got a lot to talk about, and, and we'll get to the thematic comparisons between our two movies in the next episode, but let's talk about one thing I thought these both these films had in common, just as movie-going experiences, which is that both films throw viewers into the deep end of worlds they probably don't know particularly well, and kind of expect everyone to figure out what's going on without a lot of hand-holding. I think it works for both the movies we're talking about this week, but is it always the right approach? Like, if you're watching a movie about you know, Napoleon, do you want an opening crawl setting up the historical circumstances of his rise and fall? You know, something like Bohemian Rhapsody, which <laughs> throws in a lot of exposition to the dialogue because sometimes I can feel a little lost in ways that I, I don't necessarily find my way out of although I do feel like I kind of learned to navigate both the worlds of these films what about you folks I think the only right way to do it is the way Black Adam navigates it, which is by having like a 10 minute short story at the top of the film. That's just we're we're not even really getting to any of the characters. We're just we're just filling in backstory via fable. Long ago in the land of Kondok. <laughs> Very much so. Wait, is I, a, wait, is this a Black Adam bonus episode? Are we sidetracking? Oh, yeah. Let's let's talk about Black Adam for like 20 minutes straight. I That's definitely what people who tuned in for a discussion of Chaudereau Laclos are uh, looking for. <laughs> to walk back just slightly, I guess, um, from my bold statement, it depends so much on the story and what kind of information is key to the story. Like, I'm kind of making fun of Black Adam here, but it does require a knowledge of a whole bunch of fictional stuff that, you know, nobody's going to know going in. When you're talking about a movie set like during the Napoleonic Wars, like, I, yes, I really do want at least a couple of frames up front that are just like, here are the basics you need to know historically in terms of placing yourself. And I like that 
so much better, at least exposition is hard. I would rather have the opening crawl or some kind of like historical montage or even there are films that do it, you know, via here's a little animated scene telling a story. I'd rather any of that than the approach where two characters basically have the so as we both already know and napoleon has uh you know taken the following countries and is currently on the march here yes yes i also know that and have some observations on it like i hate those approaches well if you're if you're say sitting down to see the uve uh, bull film alone in the dark <laughs> maybe you're gonna want maybe you're gonna want to, to uh, a big old title card to kind of settle you in uh, really it's just it is just a big old depends uh, situation here it's just a matter of what your narrative approach is i mean i think quentin tarantino once had a fairly graphic description of movie watching which is that there's there's kind of this umbilical cord <laughs> that from the screen invisible between uh, the screen and the audience and and um what you don't want is for that cord to be severed at any point so I think you could do it, and I think there's just two different ways an audience can be disconnected, and 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 it is one if it is if a movie does not grip you and is in respect to your intelligence and hits you with a lot of exposition that isn't necessary or is graceless, or if a film kind of throws you in the middle of a situation and never, you know, does not leave you what I would like to call sort of productively disoriented. It's good to be productively disoriented, but if uh, if it's just unclear. That it's it's just poor storytelling, and you're and you're you're disconnected in that way as well. Okay, well, we I feeling a little productively disoriented myself, but I think it's going to clear up over the course of this podcast. So we should talk about the movies themselves. Tasha, can you tell us about the pairing we'll be talking about for our next two episodes? Sure. After a 16-year absence from filmmaking, director Todd Field has returned with Tar, in which Kate Blanchett plays Lydia Tar, an acclaimed fictional conductor and composer whose entitlement and bad behavior comes back to haunt her as she's on the verge of completing a major project with the Berlin Philharmonic. Lydia's abuse of power and fall from grace put us in mind of Stephen Freer's 1988 film Dangerous Liaisons, an adaptation of Pierre Chaudereau Laclos' 1782 novel Les Liaisons Dangereuses, the story of bad behavior in secret, but not that secret, affairs amongst the rich aristocracy in the latter decades of the 18th century. I didn't plan it, but I'm kind of glad I gave you all that pronunciation, Tasha. Um, <laughs> so we hope you join us as we explore two stories of powerful people toying with the lives of others and facing the consequences, eventually. I've always known I was born to dominate your sex and avenge my own. Is there anything I could do to help? Come back when you've succeeded with Madame de Torvel. Yes. And I will offer you a reward. My love. I have this appalling reputation. Yes, I have been warned about you. What is true of most men is doubly so of him. I want the excitement of watching her betray everything that's most important to her. I love you so much. You may genuinely be unaware of this, but I can see quite plainly that you're in love with this woman. No, not at all. The paintings of Jean-Honoré Fregonard are filled with doll-like nobles, the pampered members of France's ancien regime, frolicking in verdant surroundings. 
They wear ornate clothing and self-satisfied expressions, frozen in compositions that suggest some sort of intrigue. In Fragonard's best-known work, The Swing, a husband pushes his wife on a swing, unaware that she's using the opportunity to offer a glimpse beneath her dress to a lover nestled in the shrubbery. Fragonard was employed by the sort of subjects he painted. When the French Revolution arrived in 1789, he struggled to find work and died virtually forgotten, only to be rediscovered and reassessed years later by those who saw pointedness and satire in his depictions of the frivolous privileged. In some ways, his art explains why the revolution happened in the first place. It's easy to see some of the same impulses at work in the story of the 1988 film Dangerous Liaisons, taken from Christopher Hampton's theatrical adaptation of a novel by Fragonard's contemporary Pierre Chaudereau Laclos. It's rooted in the work of a creator who knows this insulated world of privilege well and wanted to show what lay beneath the ornamentation. That's sort of the same strategy at the heart of Frears' film, which opens with the Marquis Isabelle de Mertoy, played by Glenn Close, and those around her putting on their makeup and finery as they prepare for another day of leisure and socializing. But the film ends with Isabelle alone and unadorned, unable to hide who she truly is. In between those two points lies sex and intrigue as Isabel enlists the only person who might be able to match her in manipulating others out of a mix of boredom, spite, and sadism, the Vicomte Sebastien de Valmont, played by John Malkovich, her past and possibly future lover. That possibly depends on Valmont's ability to accomplish some task Isabel sets for him, seducing both Cecile, played by Uma Thurman, a young woman intended as a bride for Isabelle's lover, who's recently left her, and the virtuous Madame Marie de Tourval, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, a woman whose religious beliefs have led her to vow to stay true to her absent husband. Valmont and Isabelle assume the first task to be easy and the second to be much tougher, and they're not wrong, but their clever calculations make no accounting for the ugliness of the task or the toll it will take on others and, eventually, themselves. There's a long path to that outcome, however, and along the way we see how Valmont's seduction of the innocent Cécile is in fact a violation, and how his toying with Marie's affections dislodges what remains of his conscience and ability to feel love with fatal consequences for both. And in the end, we see how even Isabelle's heartlessness is a posture that can be broken by the loss of a man she loved, however twisted and destructive their games have become. They don't play alone. They're masters of games their whole society plays, contests that take hypocrisy as a given and virtue as a performance. With no material wants or needs, they've turned to cruel amusements in a world as removed from everyday concerns as one of Fragonard's paintings. Neither painter nor novelist knew that this world would soon be shattered, but we do, and much of the pleasure of Frears' film comes from watching the illusions of sophistication stripped away so that only the decadence remains. But what the film ultimately finds underneath is humanity, however ugly. Isabel is triumphed up to a point via awful actions, but they're the awful actions her world demands in order to survive, particularly of women. To end up as an exile from that might be a tragedy, but it might be a push toward reclaiming what remains of her soul. I can see I'm going to have to tell you everything. Of course you are. Yes, well. My aunt is not on her own just at the moment. She has a young friend staying with her, a Madame de Torvel. You can't mean it. To seduce a woman famous for strict morals, religious fervor, and the happiness of her marriage, what could possibly be more prestigious? 
I think there's something degrading about having a husband for a rival. It's humiliating if you fail and commonplace if you succeed. Where is Monsieur de Torvel, anyway? Presiding over some endless case in Burgundy. I don't think you can hope for any actual pleasure. Oh, yes. You see, I have no intention of breaking down her prejudices. I want her to believe in God and virtue and the sanctity of marriage and still not be able to stop herself. I want the excitement of watching her betray everything that's most important to her. Surely you understand that. I thought betrayal was your favorite word. No, no. Cruelty. All right, everyone. Dangerously is. I haven't seen this film in years and, and held up really well for me. What, what do everybody else think? Yeah, I mean, I, it was great. I mean, I've seen it. I, <laughs> yeah, I, it, it played um, uh, at the movie theater I worked at. This is the sort of an 88. I was uh, so I, I saw it um, many times. I saw the end of the film, especially many, many times. And so it was it was it was a pleasure to revisit and, and kind of see from you know the lens of 2022 and 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 how and I, that's different than how i might have seen the film as a teenager you know i probably i'm sure i saw it in between too but but um but the, you know i'll get to like like the particulars of that later but but i i mean i think it's quite entertaining and and uh and gripping extremely well paced the score is incredible mm-hmm. that was one thing that stood out for me on this viewing and you get mostly i mean really f- Fine performances by the leads, unconventional. Uh, in Malkovich's case, it's a very he, the performance is I think worth digging into. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so so I think overall it, it, it's a film I like quite a bit. I'll storm in here as a millennial and say this was actually my first time seeing this film. And man, did it uh, remind me a lot of Cruel Intentions. <laughs> um, I, I, I joke, of course. Explain. Explain. I, I am aware that this movie came first. Uh, I was a little young when it came out in theaters. So uh, and it just I don't know. I just never got around to it for one reason or another as, as I got older. But uh, Cruel Intentions was definitely a, a formative film in my teen years. So the story was very familiar to me through that lens. So it was interesting to finally see, you know, the the quote unquote proper version of this story. And I did enjoy it very much. I love seeing like period film executed at this level, just like the costumes yes. alone oh probably God. sold sold me on, on this movie. Yes. I'm glad you brought up the John uh, Malkovich performance, uh, Scott, because I am going to need uh, <laughs> to talk that out a bit. It, it did strike me as an odd note, not necessarily a bum mm-hmm. note, but just maybe a little discordant among everything else. But, you know, I think that you could argue that, that that's intentional. But yeah, I, I, I'm glad I finally saw this movie. I'm excited to talk it out with you guys. Yeah, revisiting this film, sort of from the beginning, I had a moment at the beginning where I was thinking, wait, are the performances in this really bad? They're just so mannered and artificial. And it took maybe, I don't know, eight or nine minutes before I realized, oh, that's because everybody in this movie is just a big pile of pretenses that they're putting on for each other. And it's all very deliberate and very nuanced. And as the film progresses, you get to see more and more different flavors of those masks that they're wearing. And each one of those performances gets uh, deeper and deeper, except for Keanu Reeves. Yeah, uh, <laughs> poor Keanu was way, way. He was so in over his head at this point in time. This and Much Ado and like in in, in Dracula, it was just like one after another of just like. Well, it wasn't one after another, but it was 
within five years or so just like having trouble with struggling with period pieces <laughs> he acts absolutely is over his head here but at the same time I, this is one of the movies that got him into that mess in the first place because the like awkward persona and the inability to play at the same level everybody else is playing is is a hundred percent the character sure. mm-hmm. you know his his artificiality and woodenness and, and naivete like all of these things he's bringing to the table work perfectly for that character and uh i, I think just really add something to the film though uma it's, does that too and she does it really well <laughs> it's not even accidental oh like, yeah like for she sure has, has to kind of do the same thing they're sort of parallel characters and and like she she that performance is terrific but at the same time, you'll know that her character deepens a whole lot and changes a whole lot, whereas his sure. doesn't. You know, her, and that's not just in her performance, that's in the narrative. They're parallel characters, but part of the the fun of this story is watching which characters become dynamic, which characters learn to play the game and, and which mm. don't. It's just, there's a lot going on here in terms of all of the different threads, and I like that the movie asks you to keep up with all of it, to keep all of the players straight, to keep your emotions straight about how you feel about uh, different characters as you learn more about them, as you you gradually get peeks behind the mask that the the characters don't get. I just I walked away remembering why period dramas are glorious and wondering why it's been so long since I've watched one. I think the performances also kind of do a good job uh, orienting us early to who are the innocents and who are the <laughs> evildoers, I guess, in, in Vipers, the, the Vipers, guess. Yeah, malefactors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like, there's no way to read that Keanu performance other than like a sweet dummy who's in over his head, you know, and, and <laughs> as, as you say, like Uma Thurman pulls it off in a, a perhaps slightly more nuanced way, but and, and Michelle Pfeiffer even more so. But there is, I think, a delineation between how those three are playing those their characters versus how close and Malkovich are playing theirs right from the get go. So I don't know if we if we want to jump in the deep end or the shallow end, but but I, I guess the big unanswered question, or the thing that lends itself to, to analysis that we're never going to arrive at an answer, but it's going to be fun to talk about. It, it's like, what is the deal with Valmont and Isabel's relationship? Because you know, I don't get it. I, I mean, I get it. I, I get it. That it's complicated. I get that that her heart's broken at the end, but uh, it all it, it really kind of seems almost like almost like a state of masochistic relationship in some ways. You know, and like it, when he breaks from that, it's 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 like I don't know. I don't, what 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 is your take on all this? I mean, I think it's all there on mm-hmm. the the page for you, Keith. I think the the problem is we're not necessarily super used to movies where people work against their own desires and their own intentions in a shifting dynamic situation like this. And for me, one of the one of the reasons I find myself so engaged with this movie is just watching Close's performance and her character because she does change so much from scene to scene. But part of the changes in her are also situational. And I think that when she when she makes the promise to Velmont that kicks the whole thing into gear, I think she's being entirely sincere about her plans to sleep with him if she does what he says. It's just that she is giving herself an excuse, an out for letting him back into her bed and thus giving up a little bit of the control that she has. She's willing to do it. If he plays her game by her rules, because that way she 
she isn't giving up her principle of destroying men, as she puts it. She's still maintaining control. But when he comes back to her and he wants to demand the privilege that he feels he's earned, she doesn't want to sleep with him under those conditions. She doesn't want to sleep with him in that mood. And it's because there's no way that she'd maintain control. There's no way that when he's that angry and vindictive and feeling that privileged and and arrogant, she can manipulate him in the bedroom. You know, he wants to assault her as much as he wants to follow her into bed. And I, I think every time he comes back to her with that anger, she finds a new way to put him off. But as we see at the end, when her masks are stripped away, she did have feeling for him all along. He was special and unique to her. But it was also just it was necessary that she maintain an illusion to herself, I think, that she was she was in control of even their relationship. And whenever he came to her and tried to switch that up, she had to find a way to push him away. See, I don't know if I totally agree with that take. I, I feel like the like the result that she ends up getting is is almost the result that she wants the most. I mean, she feels that, that you know it's sort of filled in that I mean this relationship they had in the in the past. Um, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of lot of like residual powerful feelings happening, particularly on her end. And I think you know I don't know I don't know maybe 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 at the moment when I mean she she's stung by the fact that he he falls in love with Marie. And I think that's maybe a turning point in terms of where, what she ultimately wants to do. But but she but it is ends up being this this long con that she is playing on him at the end, right? I mean, it is, you know, th- this thing that they have conspired to do to sully these two women. There's there the 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 long con of it is that she is playing him, and that the result that has happened, the thing that has has happened, that he has genuinely fallen in love with this woman, and that he and that he has been made to break that whole thing apart and destroying himself in the process that's the result that she wants <laughs> you know that's the result that she wants and she gets it so I, I feel like that's the point of the scene I mean I, I guess you could maybe argue that had he not had those feelings had it been easy for him to sort of seduce and destroy you know maybe that would be a satisfying result for her as well and she would have slept with him or whatever and that way and they would have followed through on the deal but I feel like what actually ended up happening was the intended result was the result of a con that uh, that she was playing on him from the beginning. Uh, I I don't buy that for a second. I I think that there are aspects of your interpretation that are true and in no way disagree with mine, but in terms of her intention being to destroy him all along, I just, I don't think that that's true. I think in the scene where he's talking about Marie, you can literally watch Glenn Close's face and see the process of, I'm here to uh, exchange, you know, delightful badinage with my friend about all the people we've destroyed. And then he, she hears him talk about this woman and you can see her face fall sure, and tighten. Sure. Like, there's, I, I, I just, I think that there's a dynamic change there where she experiences something unexpected and has to shove that away from her. The, the fact that she feels jealousy, it means that she's not maintaining the control she wants. I mean, I think as far as that change in her face, like, I think you could read that as jealousy or being stung that he doesn't want her as much as he wants Marie. But I think you could also read it as her being stung that she lost the game, 
you know, and I think it all just really, I think it comes down to that monologue, that amazing Glenn Close, Close monologue about, you know, you win or you die. And I've always known I was born to dominate your sex and avenge my own. And I think it depends, like, if you think she believes that or if that is like another mask that she is putting on like like is she sincere in those sentiments that this is about like purely about power and control and you know things going the way that she designs them and when that doesn't happen she is stricken or is that whole monologue another one of the, these masks you know and is it, it is it trying to cover up some real feeling toward Valmont. I don't think we can know that. I am inclined to the more cynical reading and that in that moment, she is less upset that she is not like Valmont's choice and more that the game has gotten away from her. But I think like on subsequent viewings, that could easily change. I personally think that the monologue that she puts so much vehemence in the monologue and it it feels so real that I don't think it's a lie that she's telling exactly. But I do think that it's a deception that she's foisted on herself because the idea of, you know, bringing your sex low in order to avenge mine is very pretty on the page. But the fact is that too many of her victims are women. You know, the two people, the one that she sends Valmont after and the other who she bases her her bet on are both women who he's out to ruin and destroy. And she encourages him and she sends him after Cecile in order to hurt yet another woman. Her, her choice of uh, avenging her sex by harming her sex and proving herself superior to other examples of her sex is really suspect. And in the end, it, it just comes down for me to that terrible moment when she finds out what happened to Valmont and how she reacts then, because I, I just don't believe that there's any artificiality there. There are intense feelings between the, the, these these two that it, that is, that, you know, the, they, they're complex. I mean, there there is uh, uh, there is love there for sure between Valmont and Isabel, uh, but also hostility, you know, embedded in that relationship from the start. And it kind of, you know, ends up coming out the hostility part ends up coming out so strongly, you know, toward the end, it, you know, when, when Isabel starts to twist the knife a little bit, Valmont does, does it himself. He's like, you know, uh, it was not hard at all. You know, it was not a hard choice for Keanu Reeves's character for Donson to run off with Cecile. That was not something that, that he gave a whole lot of consideration. He gave her no, no consideration. And so, so, it, you know, kind of underlining the fact that Isabel is not anybody that anyone could love. You know, I mean, that is, that's a pretty harsh statement. I mean, at least Valmont could say that that, you know, you could say that Val, Valmont is a person that, that someone could and demonstrably does uh, care for and love, but, uh, but it's a whole, whole different story with, with, with Isabel and, and uh, obviously the, the feelings of, uh, uh, you know, I mean that that, that those feelings of, of rejection, that anger, sadness, loneliness, et cetera, that all comes through pretty powerfully in that moment. All this kind of brings me around to especially the the different interpretations that we're bringing to the table makes me want to pull the room on Cecile. Every time I watch this movie, Cecile is kind of the hardest thing for me to get around Mm. because her progression is just taken so much from both a very male understanding of women, an understanding of women that 
went into a lot of erotica of the time and still comes up today. And it, it's basically the idea the the idea that women are uh, frightened of sex and, and trained to fear it, but once you rape them, they'll realize that sex is awesome, just shows up a lot in, in literature at the time. And the fact that here she's manipulated and forced into something that she doesn't want and she almost immediately well, after being given a little uh, a little tutelage from somebody else that she admires just kind of becomes a a trainee and aficionado of his skills is maybe the hardest thing in the movie for me to swallow and i'm wondering how you how you all interpret that or how you sit with it it plays much differently for me now as an adult than it did as a teen. With and it mm-hmm. certainly as it was a better understanding of just how I think I think maybe even we are seeing it properly as more of a violation than than the film does. I think the film kind of kind of sticks sticks with the script uh, of, of the of the of the novel, which I I'll confess not having read, uh, but but that's sort of my instinct there. And yeah, it's 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 a that all thing was a lot uglier than I remember it being. I will say I haven't read the entirety of the novel, but after rewatching this movie, it's on it's on Gutenberg. You can find it free online. And I went and read some chunks of it because I was interested in some specific interpretations uh, of things that happened and just to see how they play out. And the book follows a bunch of the mechanics, but character wise, it's just very different. And Mm. the nuance is very different. So I didn't read the Cecile scenes and I don't know how that plays out. I strongly suspect that you're right and that that element's taken from the book. But there's there's just a lot of stuff like there's no indication in the book that Velmont throws that final duel, for instance. And the the end, as far as the Marquis being punished, uh, is much, much harsher and uglier. So as far as Velmont throwing the duel, I have to say that wasn't necessarily clear to me when when I watched and I, it didn't become clear until I uh, was refreshing myself via plot summary before recording this. So I, like, it, did I just like miss that, misread that entirely? Or is there supposed to be some ambiguity there? Yeah, I think yeah, he yeah, he's, a, he's a he's a far superior fighter. I mean, like, I don't it, it was it was not a situation where where Donsony had any chance at all of defeating him. It was a decision that he made. And he, he, that bit where he's kind of against the wall and he sort of loosens up the grip on his sword. Yeah. He he lets go of the sword and then turns on Donsony to, to drive his sword into him. But I mean, that, that comes after he's thrown the boy to the ground several times over. Like he, he definitely has the control of that fight and he seems bored with it. And then somewhere in the middle of it, he just decides this game is not worth the candle anymore. Okay. I guess I took that him impaling himself on the sword to be more of like an oopsie on, on Dawson's part. Mm. Um, but uh, I'm I'm fully willing to admit that I could have misread that. Well, then, and then, I mean, Valmont then in his little speech talks about driving the blade in deeper than, mm-hmm. than, um, than Donson he did so he so it was so that part of it was deliberately he said he said says it you know explicitly at that moment to circle back a little bit to that the Cecile stuff I mean I you know I I don't really have a defense of that particular trope but I will say that it, it does lead I think to one of the most interesting scenes in the whole movie which is which is when Isabel comes in and kind of 
talks to her about what all what the significance of all this is and what the kind of you know and it's this interesting act of you know manipulation which they've been doing all all, all along uh, and uh and uh but it also there's also something about like okay this is how the way this is the way the word world actually works and this is it, i'm gonna pull i'm gonna kind of pull up the veil on how whatever power we have can be you know used you know that we can we can seek out pleasure we can we can find we can we can, you can you can kind of like be arranged to marry this old guy who you want nothing to do with but you know if you if if you're discreet and you're clever you can also do this and that so it's like so there is kind of a like okay this is this seems terrible and you've call, called me in crisis and i'm going to do something that's both diabolical and also true um, and I'm going to do something diabolical for my, for my co-conspirator, but then I'm also going to, but what I'm also saying is, is, is actually the way things work. And this is what your mom's like, you know, <laughs> this is like, you know, it's like, it's all, this is what the way the, this is, this is an education. And I think, and I think there's something pretty straightforward, very cynical, but something very straightforward about that discussion. Oh gosh, I wouldn't call it straightforward. I mean, I, I think you, you put your, you put your finger exactly on it. It's, it's diabolical. It's holy, she's basically holy, telling holy her diabolical? holy diabolical. She she's telling her sleep with as many men as possible, still because she's trying to offend the offend her like husband to be who uh, offended the marquise. But I, I I agree with you that she's telling her something true. But she's she's also basically telling her, you know, by the standards of the time, you should ruin yourself as much as possible because that serves my purpose. It's a, it's, it's a grotesque bit of manipulation. And maybe the fact that it's also partially true is part of what makes it gross. So grotesque. It's, it's a really neat well, scene. Well, she's, she's denying any information of how to protect herself within that reality of the, <laughs> the way things are. Or, you know, uh, Isabel, like, knows how to navigate this world in a way that uh, allows her to still be admired and uh, not scorned until, obviously, the, the, the end. And she doesn't impart any of that information to Cecile. She only imparts the information that could ruin her for Isabel's own own purposes. So it's, you know, there I don't think there's any way you can interpret that as being like a an act of even a tiny bit of an act of like charity or imparting like education to to Cecile because in order for it to be that like there she's leaving out some crucial information. <laughs> I see. I don't, yeah, that's a really good point. I, yeah, I don't. I I, I kind of disagree because I feel like, I mean, it's, consider the alternative. I mean, the alternative is that she's just gonna she's gonna do what she's supposed to do, which is which is to marry this old, old this guy who's twice her age that she she has no interest in, and that's gonna be her life, and that's gonna be you know. And uh, I think Isabel has you know is kind of saying this is kind of the way I do things. You know, I kind of, you know, I I have the discretion. And the cleverness to satisfy, you know, whatever, you know, romantic slash sexual desires that I might have, you know, it, you can too. That's just the way it could go for you. So if you are interested in having a relationship with Donsony, you can have one. <laughs> just do it. You know, I'm not going to, you know, that, that that's going to be, you can make that part of your life. You can get away with that stuff, you know, and that's the best way you can kind of, that's kind of the best, you know, scenario for getting, you know, the best of, uh, of a bad hand, I guess, that you can play. Sort of. But I mean, Genevieve's right in noting that 
it's all well and good for a an older woman who is a respected widow and very rich to say that the same rules don't apply to a what somewhere between 16 and 18 year old girl who's entirely under her mother's protection and is being sold off as a sold off to a man who's obsessed with virginity like the the rules just aren't the same there and by pretending that they are she's digging cecile a very very deep grave we should maybe pull back from from the plot and talk about some of the choices made in making this movie, which is, you know, filmed on location in France, featuring a largely American cast, making no attempt <laughs> to do any kind of accent work. And it's fine. By my reckoning, it's fine though. But but why does that work? It's in some in a different that might clang in a different kind of movie. Well, why does why does it work here? I mean, I think in part it works because I just don't think this movie is all that concerned about the specifics of time, place or politics. Mm. Like you you opened up this discussion by talking about how the story drops us in the deep end with no explanation of like, I, I don't know who the king is at this time. I don't know how far we are from the revolution or in what direction. And it doesn't matter because this isn't a story about a specific time and place where things were very different. It's a story about you know, bored rich people doing horrible things. It's a story that from the beginning, we can all relate to a bit in terms of we've seen other stories about jaded, bored, entitled people like getting up to to bad adventures. And I just don't think the, the French setting here is one of the most important points. I think everything might be a little silly if this particular cast was all try- out trying to talk in the French accents, uh, and I'm I'm glad they don't do it. It can be weird when you get that kind of thing, and every everybody's British, especially if you're like in a completely you know in a in a you're in Germany and everybody's British or whatever. But I mean, for me here, it works because the story is about these people and not necessarily about it's about their world. In that, you know, the the details of what they do for fun and how they do it are tied to a time and place. But that time and place could just as well work in Britain during a certain time period, in Germany during a certain time period. It doesn't necessarily have to be very exact in a way that it's insulting to us that these people don't sound more French. I think it's, for me, it's less that they don't sound French. It's less about the place and more about the time. It's it's how modern they sound, uh, Keanu Reeves in, in particular. And, and I think Glenn Close has this probably the least, like there is a sort of manneredness to her speech that I associate any way with like period film performance, you know, um, but... Malkovich and and Keanu Reeves like it sounds very like 1980s you know just like their diction I guess and it's like not really something I think you could like dissect on like a line by line level it's more just sort of a a vibe that comes across over, over the course of the film I did find it a little jarring uh, uh personally and I don't really have a great reason for why other than it's just like not what I expected because every other element of this the the production design the costuming the music like just screams period piece so for the performance and spe- especially the speaking styles to be so contemporary 
I agree that it's done purposely, and I agree that it serves to sort of highlight that these people are to a certain degree, just insulated from the outside world, the as you say, Tasha, like the politics of the, of the time and place. But just like on a, I guess, a movie making level, I found it to be more distracting than I think the filmmakers may have intended. But that's maybe just me. Yeah, you know, it kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, another film, maybe from that same year, the uh, the Last Temptation of Christ, which is which is full of. You know, uh, where Jesus is, where the disciples are like, uh, you know, as Mark Maron says, one, one of his, his, there is guys, you know, from New York, <laughs> who, who are your guys? It's those guys. You know, I think it's a, it's just one of those things where the, where the movie just, this is what the movie is. And I, I, I didn't find it distracting necessarily, but I do think it's kind of worthwhile to dig into the performances, particularly Malkovich's, because I know at the time that performance was divisive and I didn't understand even why at the time because I, I I thought this thing is this is an incredible performance I was always on board and then watching it watching it now uh, I I still am largely on board and and very affected by the performance because I it's just so commanding but it is a little bit strange in terms of getting you to buy into specific moments to be able to say oh of course he doesn't necessarily hide his intentions terribly well particularly when when he is with marie i don't think it, she doesn't he, he he speaks to her in a way that suggests cruel intentions <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, quite, quite a bit and and um and uh, yeah that part isn't hidden but then you get to get to the get to some of the bigger scenes in the movie and he's just so mesmerizing i don't know what do you think of that performance I guess I never thought of it as, I mean, maybe I just missed the divisiveness, or, but um, I always, I mean, this is what I think of. This is the quintessential John Malkovich performance for me, more more even than being John Malkovich. This is mm. how I think of him I, I, um, as his character. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, I can't really imagine anyone else in this role or this role in this movie. Obviously, other people have played this character and well uh, elsewhere, but but, um, but not not here. Yeah, there's certainly a manneredness to it uh, that he maybe comes out most clearly when he's just kind of like drawling his way through some of his more bored moments. But he's just so pointed, so vicious when he when he gets riled up. Maybe it's just his face here for me. Mm -hmm. Like from the moment you first see him, his kind of lowered brow and and sharp cheekbones and like the way he he's kind of got like resting bastard face. <laughs> he he just looks cruel and he looks like uh, an oscar wilde type who would roll into a a room immediately expect everybody to be talking about him and then drop a few bon mots about how uh, everybody should be talking about him the way people respond to him with this sort of mixture of like fascination and terror i think is just is very telling and for me yeah i mean maybe he stands out a little bit but i I don't think in a bad way. I think this character demands uh, somebody who stands out a little bit, somebody who's kind of at odds with the world around him. And thus is kind of a figure of fascination among a very bored group of people uh, who are all used to operating in a very uh, specific way. 
I do kind of have problems at times with his uh, interchanges with Marie, just because the manipulation seems so blatant yes. and almost right. boring that, yeah, compared yeah. to what the, the marquee pulls off. Yeah, and like I'm listening to you talk, I'm realizing that w- I think where I like hit a wall with the performance is with the seduction aspect of his character, mm-hmm. because I absolutely like think it works sort of as, as you're talking about in these settings where he like walks into a room and, you know, you know, wants everyone to be fascinated and terrified with him. Like that certainly I think comes across very well, but you know, as you say, when he's with Marie or even, even Cecile, like the idea that he is like a master seducer, seductor, I, I have a harder time buying with that performance for whatever reason it, it might be his his look like his his face does have a sort of gloweringness to it that is is not maybe particularly welcoming in in my uh opinion but i think that is probably where my main issue with the performance lies he's like there's like he's like there's something kind of like predatory about it always in that seduction and, and, and it feels like it, it's something that that you would think marie would be able to recognize and see through pretty easily but he does but you know he does so, you know soften up and take on that character takes on you know more dimension and so the fallout part of it is so good and, and you know in, in the in the, the money scene the whole it's beyond my control scene uh it reminded me so much of, of my favorite episode of Re- review uh, uh, where, where uh the pancakes pancakes divorce pancakes where, where he has to where he has to review divorce and so and so and so through by committing to his show he has to break up a perfectly happy marriage and it's just like this thing where he is saying that he wants a divorce but he's just utterly pained <laughs> he has this utterly pained expression <laughs> on his face doing it and it it, it kind of hit that same you know nature's kind of hits that same feeling in that scene where it's just like this is the most you know this is him at, at, at you know having to be so cruel but also act against his own desires and so have you know be saying it's beyond my control breaking this uh, woman's heart is so you know excruciating and i think i think that scene is just a, a real masterpiece overall and it's just it's really the one that that malkovich sells you know the, the most the, the 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 money scene I, I, I think he say, really sells in that moment the idea that he's punishing himself even more than he's punishing her. Mm. Like he's being cruel to himself in doing what he he thinks he wants or he thinks he needs to do. His his refusing to even try to sell a belief in the things that he's saying and yet saying them anyway, I think is very blatant. But I will say, as far as not buying the seduction, for me, it's less his performance or even the cruelty of his face and just more the scripting. You know, the fact that he keeps going to her with uh, lines like, why should you be so upset at the thought of making me happy? Mm -hmm. You know, in an environment where women's sexuality is so regimented and and controlled the idea of you know turning on somebody and saying well you're treating me with contempt because you won't sleep with me when i want you to and having that be a compelling argument given everything that we know about marie is just very hard to buy he keeps coming in with these logistical traps that are essentially it's very socially cruel and rude of you to not sleep with me when that's the thing that i want and that might work on Cecile, who is young and naive, but you would think that Marie would see right through it. I know we're not litigating the sex appeal of John Malkovich, but I just need to interject. I, I knew someone in college who was so t- 
taking with John Malkovich. She she had a poster of him. I mean, sorry, a postcard of him, but she had to keep it in her closet because if she had it out, you know, where she could look at it all the time, it was too distracting. So, <laughs> I mean, so you know, do you do you happen to know if it was from anything in particular? You know, if I I remember the I remember the postcard. I I think it's just kind of a standard Malkovich like headshot, uh, um, but um, not for any movie in particular. She must have I, I, she, I, she must have passed out during that scene of being John Malkovich, where he's doing a little dance there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> perhaps so. We we lost touch over the years, but but I but I I always think of uh, of her when I think of uh, Malkovich. So this is a film directed by Stephen Frears, who who has directed many great films. I don't necessarily think he's someone you think of with a strong directorial style, and that's not a criticism. That's just kind of you know he 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 is malleable. But in terms of like the choices made in this, the one I find where I I, I feel the you know Frears' presence or just some directorial ch- touch directorial choices being you know evident. And I shall say, Frears is clearly a great director with with actors. Uh, but but in some of the editing choices here, we 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 get a lot of discussion, and action gets breezed past. We get there's a lot of talk about sex, but the sex scenes are kind of uh, you know you know we don't, they're off screen except for the one between Valmont and Marie, and that's probably significantly so. You know, there's there's talk of a duel, and then the duel is there. It just kind of leads right up to it. Um, Marie's illness is something that takes place largely off screen until she's in her last throes of it. Um, is, why do you think? You know, this, why dwell on the talk? Is that is is that is that significant, or am I, or, or or not? I mean, I feel like one of the things that does Mark Frears as a director is his interest in ensembles and his interest mm. in complicated byplays. I mean, he went directly from this to The Grifters, which is just one of the all-time great kind of, you know, triangle of tension films. And then movies like High Fidelity are just all about the, the conversation. Uh, the Queen, I think, is one of his standouts. And it's kind of about all the things that aren't being said in a complicated social situation full of tensions. So, you know, maybe he's cutting away from the sex and leaving out the the buildup to the action because that's just not what interests him. What interests him is the byplay between complicated characters navigating relationships. I mean, sex was a big deal for him. The, the films leading up to <laughs> Dangerously, it sounds to me that, you know, it was the, the three films he did before, My Beautiful Laundrette, Prick Up Your Ears, and Sammy and Rosie Get Laid. So that part of it was, you know, it was a pretty big deal i think there was you know and this was a big production for him this was a huge step up in terms of budget this is his first studio film i think it's exquisitely appointed as a studio film i was really lamenting today of just like man like warner brothers spent for like 14 mil on the thing and it's like and it made money it made like it made three times its budget so it was a profitable film it's like god you just kill for a time when like studios could make the, a mo- movie like this and it would and people would show up and it would be a success and they mean more it was just like a, it was such I, I miss that so much even though that was even starting to go away a little bit at that time but um but it's just a, it's a beautifully appointed film uh it, it, it's just you know I, I just think you know it's a, it's a matter of a filmmaker who's making good strong choices that you know it, it is not a i mean i will not i don't i don't want to s- to smack down Merchant Ivory and the kind because I, I like many of their films, but there's a there's a robustness to this movie, um, a, a brazenness that feels very suited to the material. It's provocative. It just it feels 
uh, very much uh, you know alive and that can be hard in a period piece period pieces historical dramas they can feel stodgy and there's nothing stodgy about this film it, it you know in the score it, right it, right down to the score which is you know really memorable and not you know not masterpiece theater ish at all i think as far as the you know, relative lack of sex scenes and sort of the uh, abruptness of the ending. I think both things also just work on a thematic level because like these are characters for whom sex is kind of boring or de facto or, you know, the only, you know, real sex scene we get is the one that actually means something to Belmont. You know, everything else that we see from him and Isabel is like, okay, going to have sex now, opening the door, closing the door. <laughs> you know, it's there, hmm. there's no real magic to it because there is no magic to it for them anymore. It's a, it's a game, you know? So I think that, I think the way that those scenes are sort of edited and placed within the film themselves kind of underline that. And then like, as for the ending, like, I agree. I felt like it was incredibly like abrupt. <laughs> like, it was like, you know, we got like maybe five minutes of this two hour film on sort of the fallout of all this. But again, like it kind of makes sense because like when things fall apart this catastrophically, like you, you, the person who who is, uh, the, who is getting the fallout in this case is about like they don't see it coming and it just wallops her you know oh, so it kind yeah. of makes the having it arrive so suddenly and quickly and sort of without warning in the film uh, I think reflects that as well the ending, ending of this film is phenomenal I mean just like the whole all of the fallout with Isabel is just it's so powerful her, her eruption of emotion when she has discovered what has happened and then the, the opera scene and and just the, the the way it pays off what is a framing device really i mean because she's getting made up at the beginning of the film and, and just to see that makeup come off in that beautiful beautiful fade to black as, as kind of a tear falls down her face and it's just so perfect it's such a great great ending i just i i, I love it so much it is one of the all-time mm-hmm. great endings. And one of the reasons is, I mean, again, going back to Freer's editing, it just cuts out everything extraneous. You know, after a movie that's been all about people talking, talking through what they want and talking to get what they want, you come to a place where all the dialogue falls away. And he doesn't bother with lengthy denouements, in part because there's just nobody left for Isabella to talk to in a meaningful way. She's lost that person. So what you get is an ending that implies all of the years to come after this. Uh, I, I alluded to the book having a very different ending. Like in the in the book, she gets a smallpox, loses an eye, is terribly scarred for life. Uh, lawsuits are going to be brought against her for Valmont's death because of, uh, you know, potentially causing it. So she steals all of her jewels and like runs away to another country. And like all of that drama just wouldn't fit here. It, what you get instead is just a, a perfect moment of her facing herself and the rest of her life without a word. You can see it all happening just in the way it's shot, in the way she's made up and in the expression on her face. It's it really is one of the best uh, movie endings, I think, of all time. Do we do well, we credit Christopher Hampton with some of some of that? Is that it, I wonder if Christopher Hampton's play also kind of like, you know, shaved away some of that stuff from the from the uh, book as well. 
Well, Scott, you just you just spoiled my perfect segue, which is say <laughs> it's time for us to have our own perfect ending to this discussion. <laughs> Never. <laughs> but we might end now. But we'll, we'll be continuing this uh, discussion next week when we when we bring in Tar. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion and anything else relevant in the world of film. What, what and also, what do you think of Malkovich? What, what's going on with this movie? Let's 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 get some let's get some theories cooking. Um, you can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners, or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback. Before we get into it, we should pause to remind everyone to listen to Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. Recent episodes have featured their own takes on Decision to Leave and Tar, as well as some fun lists and other discussion topics. And if you're going to be in New York on January 14th, you can attend the show's annual wrap party, which is always a blast. Tickets are now on sale at filmspotting.net. And now let's get to feedback. Genevieve, we received some interesting takes on Decision to Leave. Care to share one? Sure. John writes with his two cents on decision to leave. He says he'll try not to spoil too much. We appreciate that, John. Uh, John writes, I read the ending as really a decision to stay. By doing what she did and the way she did it, So Ray has made a decision to stay in Heijun's life because she knows the only way he will forever be interested in her and also decide to stay with her is to become an unsolved and perhaps unsolvable mystery. In this way, he will pine unceasingly for her with the obsession he has for the cases pinned to his wall. He will chase her metaphorically, calling for her on the beach without answer for the rest of his life, as he does literally at the end of the movie. In this way, it won't become run-of-the-mill and every day as his marriage did. There will always be intrigue. This is paralleled in Brief Encounter, as the decision to leave it unconsummated without any future contact leaves it forever as what could have been for both parties. Both movies are stories that will never have an end for the people involved, with an asterisk for one, of course. The excitement, mystery, and endless possibility of new love will never be allowed to evolve beyond that. Good letter, John. Yeah, no notes. <laughs> uh, that was definitely my interpretation of Suray's choice, but it was something we really couldn't get into, I think, without discussing what that choice is. But yes, that, that certainly is my read, and I think this is uh, just a very well-put explanation of that. And a keen parallel to Brief Encounter, too, uh, which uh, th thanks for doing our job for us, uh, John, with that, that connection. <laughs> I, I can't help but wonder if having some sense of that dynamic is why Alec lets it go as, as easily and simply as he does in Brief Encounter, because it does sort of seem like Laura makes the decision for both of them. And he, he kind of briefly, weakly protests, but then let's go. And I wonder if there's any sense at which he sees that it will remain stronger and more powerful and, and more special uh, if he if he doesn't have the ability to carry it through. Also, we received a neat observation about Brief Encounter's connection to another film. Scott, can you read that one? Yes. Meg writes, really love this week's conversation as always. Thank you. Uh, listening to the discussion about how little we know about Alec at Brief Encounter, I couldn't help but think of the story I had heard about Billy Wilder's reaction to seeing the movie. He also wanted to know somebody's backstory, just not Alex. He said, quote, they go to the apartment of a friend of his. I saw it and I said, what about the guy who has to crawl into the warm bed? Unquote. That's an interesting character. Then I put that down and put down some other things in my notebook. The hero of that thing was a guy who endured this, who was introduced to it all by a lie. 
one guy in his company needed to change his clothes, he said, and use the apartment. End quote. And that was the birth of the apartment. Now I can never think of either movie without the other, and it seemed especially relevant after the discussion of Alex pushiness. That I did not know any of that. That was that's incredible. <laughs> I just I I could. I, was, I think this letter made Scott's totally week when it when it showed up. <laughs> and I mean, these are two films Where, I absolutely love. I mean, like this, these are like this is the the film of of David Lean's I like the most. This is the film of Billy Wilder's I like the most. This is it was just it it just it amazed me that 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 they have this uh, connection and that and that Wilder would have seized on this aspect of the movie in the way that he, he did um, because it's such a clever little aspect, little corner of, of, of the, of the film to kind of turn into another film. So that was awesome. I was so excited to get this letter. Well, it may have made your week, but it ruined my week because uh, I, I thought about bringing up the apartment specifically when we were having the argument about the way Alex friends responds to him uh, being there with a woman proves that Alec doesn't do this all the time. I almost made some crack about how, oh, you're saying that this isn't the apartment from the apartment. And now I, I could have looked so smart or would I have looked dumber because I threw that in and I didn't know that connection either. I mean, I, I was also, uh, to be fair, very excited to read this letter and and see that there was a connection there that I had absolutely no idea about. So yeah, fun times. All, all I'll add just because uh, Meg in sharing this uh, excellent quote uh, didn't mention exactly uh, where the, the source for it. And it is from conversations with Wilder and the conversation with uh, Cameron Crowe. Which I read. So. I read that book. I didn't remember the anecdote. I reviewed <laughs> that book for the, for the AV club and I don't remember that specific Maybe I skimmed it or something, but anyway, it's a, that's a really good book too. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously it's you know, Trefoe Hitchcock is the model, but you know, there's something to be said about that book. That's a that's a good one. It's a good pairing of sensibilities too, Crow and Wilder. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations and and bits of trivia. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at next picture show. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll explore some present-day dangerous liaisons with some cruel intentions mixed in (laughs) via Todd Field's Tar. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, if you attempt to damage the virtue of others, be sure to keep your saber sharp and your wits even sharper. <laughs>